0: If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, the beauty of the gospel is that God has saved us. He's freed us from the power and the penalty of sin. He's put us in Christ, who's now our life. So we gather together to surrender our lives and say, our lives are yours, and we're your servants. It's not a radical version of Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. It's what it means to be a follower of Christ. We don't call the shots. He calls the shots.
1: The Radical Together Podcast with teaching from David Platt. Welcome back to a new episode of the Radical Together podcast. If you're new to the podcast, you can listen to all the previous episodes at Radical.net or by subscribing on iTunes. Now, a few months ago, David preached at the Send North America conference from Nehemiah chapter one. And today you're going to hear the first part of that two-part message entitled Nehemiah and the Call to Mission.
0: I want to I start tonight by letting you know where we're going And then I want to pray for what is going to happen in the next few minutes. So, it's traditionally common to close a missions conference with an invitation for special, extraordinary group of people who sense that God is calling them to mission to make a decision, sign a card, stand, say, God's calling me to mission, or God's calling me to ministry, but the whole point of this mission conference has been to make clear that that call is not for a special, extraordinary group of people. The call to mission is for all of God's people. Now, I want to be clear that I believe, biblically, God calls some of his people to join him. On mission cross-culturally, specifically to plant churches among people who've never heard of Christ. Romans chapter 15, Paul expressed his ambition to preach Christ where he's not been named. The only way I can describe God calling me to the position where I am now is a narrowing Romans 15-like ambition to spend the little bit of time and energy and resources I have left on this earth to see Christ preach where he's not been named. But obviously that doesn't mean God is calling every Christian to move and work among unreached people. But I hope we've seen, and I want to show you again tonight, that God is calling every one of his children to join him in spreading the gospel to those who don't know Christ. So, as we finish tonight, at the end of our time, I'm going to extend an invitation to mission But it is not going to be an invitation to special, extraordinary, small group of people. It's going to be an invitation to ordinary people all across this room to say, I want to join God in mission. I want the trajectory of my life to be joined with Him in spreading the gospel to people who don't know Christ here I am, God, send me right where I live and wherever you lead, wherever you lead. So that's where all this is going and I want to pray in anticipation of that moment at the end of our time in the Word. And I really want us to really pray. So I've got this tendency just confession when I'm praying in public, especially at the beginning of a sermon, I have a tendency to bow my head and just say some words almost mindlessly to kind of set up my talk. Or I even have a sin-sick tendency in a conference like this to try to pray in a way that might impress someone. And then I know, at least I think, that many of us, many of you probably have a tendency when we bow our heads in a gathering this size to pray, we have this tendency to just let our minds start to wander and within seconds of starting to pray, hundreds, maybe thousands of us in this arena start thinking about other things What we did before this, what we're doing after this, this thing or that thing in our lives, in the people around us, just a myriad of thoughts all around the room. And in a matter of seconds, if we're not careful, then there could be this monotonous, meaningless prayer exercise going on in this place while all of heaven is shouting, do you realize who you're talking to? Do Do you realize... What you're doing. You're talking to God. 13,000 of you at one time are talking to God and He's listening to you. I mean, sure, He's upholding Mars at the same time, in addition to trillions of other stars in the galaxy that he knows by name, and seven billion people on the planet that he's sustaining their every organ right now. But you have God's attention in this arena. So don't let your mind wander. And God is here. He's, God is here. He's about to speak. So I want us to fix our attention on him. I want to make sure my attention's on him, so I'm only saying what he's saying, that our attention is on him together, so we're hearing from him. I've wrestled the last couple of days with what text to go to tonight. I had something totally different planned originally, but there's a particular text that God brought me to these last couple of days as we've gathered here. I believe he has a word for us in this text, and I'm believing that word to bear fruit in 13,000 different ways tonight. So, So we just bow our heads together. Let's close our eyes. Focus our attention. Just contemplate the wonder of the one we're talking to right now. As I voice it aloud, just in our hearts, all 13,000 of us, let's say together to Him. Our Father in heaven, we want, to hear from you. We want to thank you for the ways you have spoken to us up to this point. And now as we prepare to close this conference, we're asking you to bring it to point. To crystallize your word in our hearts, we pray. We pray that you would clarify where we need clarification. That you would give courage where we need courage. That You would convict where we need conviction. God, that you would give faith where we need faith. God, I pray that through your word, in the next few moments, you would work in this arena in a way that would have ripple effects in 50 states and among nations pray the fruit of your word would be born in entire people groups being reached with the gospel as a result of what you do in this gathering tonight. We ask that, God, in great anticipation of what you are going to say. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you have his word. And I hope you do. Let me invite you to open with me to Nehemiah chapter one. Four things I believe God is saying to this gathering, as we close tonight, And I'm going to phrase them as if they are coming directly from God. And I want to be careful in that. Uh, Because I obviously don't want to put words in God's mouths. But I believe these words align directly with his word. All over scripture. Which will be all over scripture at different points. And illustrated here in Nehemiah. Now I want to make sure. Obviously we are hearing his word accurately. Which means we need to know the context in which this word was spoken. And I was looking back. And my notes on Nehemiah. And I found, so I've got a folder on my computer that contains all my study in Nehemiah. And I found a PowerPoint presentation that I put together when I was speaking at a youth retreat or something like 15 years ago. And I just laughed when I saw it. Because I thought it was pretty cutting edge when I put it together. I was pretty proud of it. But now, uh, well, I, I just thought I'd show it to you. So you think this conference with all the lights and graphics and stuff is high-tech. I'm about to show you high-tech, okay? So this is, this is my PowerPoint explanation of the book of Nehemiah, okay? So I think this will work. All right. All right. Took me a long time to find that map. So what you've got here is historical background. On the left of this map, on the west side of this map, you have the city of Jerusalem, which is central among the people of God. And in the city of Jerusalem, you had a, there's Jerusalem. In the city of Jerusalem, you had a temple. Huh? (laughs) See the temple? (laughs) Took up like four cities, but it's a temple. In the city. And then, in addition to the temple in the middle of Jerusalem, you had walls all the way around the city. You ready for this? Walls. So, that was the setting when the Babylonian Empire over here on the east. And 597 to 586 B, B.C. got together and they journeyed over to Jerusalem. And when they got there, <laughs> did you see that animation? Like it started on one side and then it went to the other side. Just like an army traveling in an ark <laughs> to the city of Jerusalem. And when they got there... Watch what happens. (laughs) So apparently they put dynamite in the temple (laughs) and blew up the walls. We don't have time to keep doing that, but that's a pretty incredible effect. So after that, after that, the people in Jerusalem who were left who survived the dynamite, um, they were taken into exile. Where is it? Okay, there they are. All right, so they were taken in exile into Babylon. And once they got there, they were scattered all around Babylon. Huh? Just scattered. They keep scattering. (laughs) So that was the state of God's people. Everybody separated from one another who had lived through that time, separated from one another, friends and family uh, in the Babylonian Empire. Well, the Babylonians got what was coming to them in 539 B.C., when the, there they go, no more Babylon, Persian. Persian empire takes over in 539 BC. And the Persian kings decides that anybody who wanted to among the people of Israel could go back and travel to Jerusalem. So not everybody did, but some of them got together in a big circle. And those who wanted to traveled back over to Jerusalem. And so they made the journey back to Jerusalem. When they got there, anybody know what the first thing they did is? They rebuilt in 516 BC the temple. There it is again. The only problem was there were no what? No walls around the temple. Which means Jerusalem was vulnerable, open to attack from all sides. It took a long time to get all those arrows. And it was at this point, in 444 BC that Nehemiah was living, working as a cupbearer to the king over here in the Persian palace. Was that not the most amazing picture of Nehemiah that you've ever seen? So, with that amazing context, we read these words. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Kislev. In the 20th year, as I was in Susa the Citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So he's describing what we just saw, the picture of the temple with the walls down. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. So what is God saying to us in his word at the close of this conference? Four things. Number one. God is telling us to see a world in great need. God is telling us to open our eyes and see a world in great need. To see
1: like Nehemiah saw. We'll return to David's message in just a minute, but we want to take a moment and let you know about a few opportunities available to you this month. We at Radical would like to invite you to join us in participating in a free webcast on October 30th. The International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church is a live webcast hosted by our ministry partner, Open Doors. During the webcast, guests from around the world will share how you can pray together with other believers for persecuted Christians. For more information or to sign up for the webcast, Visit opendoorsusa.org IDOP. And registration is now open for the Secret Church simulcast with David Platt next April. Secret Church is an evening of intense Bible study and prayer for the persecuted church based on time David spent teaching in underground house churches in Asia. This year's topic will be a global gospel in a world of religions. During this Secret Church, David will explore the claims of Christ in the gospel and consider how these claims inform the way we understand other religions in the world today. He'll also dive into the ways believers can share the gospel with people from varied religious backgrounds. And we hope you'll join us for Secret Church on Friday, April 29th. To find out more about Secret Church and to take advantage of early simulcast registration pricing, visit secretchurch.org. Now here's David with the rest of today's message.
0: First time we see Nehemiah, he's weeping. Is that because Nehemiah is a softy? Just cries easily. I don't think so. At the end of this book in Nehemiah chapter thirteen, when he returns to Jerusalem, and the people of God have fallen into sin and and married, intermingled with other peoples and their gods in marriage. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 24 says, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. So what did Nehemiah do? So I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Nehemiah is no softy. Be glad Nehemiah is not your pastor. So, so why is he weeping? text says, because he sees a city in great trouble. The remnant is in trouble and shame. And as soon as Nehemiah saw that, he sat down and he wept. You see the scene, and you can't help but think about passages like Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 5. Who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Who will mourn for you? Who will stop to ask how you are? Nehemiah says, I will. I'll stop to ask how you are. And I'll mourn. I'll weep for you. When was the last time you wept? I mean, wept over people in need. Not talking a tear. Talking, weeping. I believe this is dangerous. I believe we have a tendency to see so much need in the world. And if we are not careful for our hearts to be cold and indifferent. I see this in my own life. I think of one trip I took to South Asia in the plane on the way over there, working on a book, specifically writing a chapter on sex slavery. And I wrote a rough draft of the chapter filled with scriptures, statistics, but it was so cold, just unfeeling. Until I got to South Asia. And I trekked through impoverished villages where families are starving, and I saw the homes where sex traffickers prey on people's poverty. I saw the homes where traffickers had come and met with the family and promised their 10-year-old daughter a better life if she'd go into the city with them and get her a good job down there where she could make money, be provided for. She could send money back up to support her family there and then every so often come back up to visit her family. That family hasn't seen their daughter since and they've never received any money, and she's not working a good job. She's living in a brothel. She's living there. She's living in a place where her little body and her little spirit are broken every day, drugged and raped repeatedly. Required to do whatever the men who come into that brothel want them to do. Some of these little girls have 10 to 15 customers a day. This is their life. Talk about in great trouble and shame. As I'm trekking, I'm reading Luke 10, which we heard earlier. And I'm reading the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm thinking, as myself? As myself? As if this was my daughter? What if this was my daughter? And it just fell on my face and started weeping. I'm talking uncontrollable weeping that wouldn't stop. As I thought about that girl and thousands and thousands and thousands of others like her. And God reminded me, these aren't words on a page. These are people. Just like your little girl, these are People Like you and me, so see them. Don't see them with indifference. A billion people living in desperate poverty. A billion people like you and me who don't have enough food today. They don't have enough food or water. Our dogs and cats are eating better than our brothers and sisters in East Africa. See them. See them this fall. On any given week this fall, 50,000 of them, these individual people will die of AIDS. In a week, 100,000 kids in one week, kids just like yours and mine will die of hunger-related diseases. Untold. In that same week, babies will be dismembered and destroyed in their mother's wombs. These children made in the image of God. All of that will happen in just one week this fall. So see them and don't let your greatest concern be how your football team plays. Doesn't matter. These people matter. And that's just physical need. We're not even talking about spiritual need. We're not even talking about people, individuals right around you and me, all around the world who are dying without Christ and they're going to an eternal hell. Eternal. Eternal. Forever. Said that Jonathan Edwards would urge people to consider the torment of burning like a livid coal, not for an instant or for a day, but for millions and millions of ages, at the end of which they will realize that they are no closer to the end than when they first begun, and they'll never ever be delivered from that place. This is real. Say we had a hell of a time. You played a hell of a game. It was a hell of a song. That way we talk about hell shows we have no idea what we're talking about. And so many of these people are going to hell without ever even hearing the good news uh, about how they can be saved from their sin. We're talking two billion people, two billion. I don't even know how to think that number two billion people, six thousand people groups all around the world who are dying and they 've never even heard the gospel they 're going to hell, and nobody 's even told them how they could go to heaven we can 't be cold to this we can 't be indifferent to this this can 't be tolerable for us. God help us to weep for them to not because we 'll not be cold for people who are suffering in earthly hells, people who are going to eternal hell. God is saying to his church, Don't just retreat into nice big buildings where you sit in nice cushioned chairs where you insulate and isolate yourselves from urgent spiritual and physical need around you while giving a tip of the hat to world missions and evangelism while going on and designing endless programs that revolve around yourselves. God's saying, open your eyes, church. Open your eyes. And when you do, nominal, casual, cultural Christianity that functionally turns a blind eye and deaf ear to a world in need won't make any sense anymore. It won't make sense. It won't add up. So see the world in great need. See see, it, but there's something more here because it's not just need that's driving Nehemiah here. I want you to think about this with me. Why was it such a problem that the walls were down? Yes, they were open to attack. Sure, they were vulnerable to temptation spiritually. Indeed, they weren't protected in all kinds of ways, but... I don't think those are the only reasons why Nehemiah was weeping. Even the main reasons. And we need to get this. Or we may miss the whole point of the book. I want you to think about it with me. In that city of Jerusalem, in the middle of that city, as you saw, is a temple. A temple built to display the glory of God. That was its purpose. 1 Kings 8, 41-43 made clear that The nations would come to this place and they would see the glory of God on display. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. They'll see my glory in this place. So think about it with me. With the walls in shambles around that city, if you're a surrounding nation looking into the city of Jerusalem, seeing a temple to the supposedly one true God with walls in shambles all around the city, what do you think of that people's God? And that God is weak. That God doesn't care for his people. He doesn't provide for his people. And Nehemiah knew that the design of the temple was to declare God's glory. And it wasn't declaring his glory. The exact opposite was happening. Instead of shouting God's glory, Jerusalem was shaming God's name. And yes, Nehemiah was concerned for the good of God's people, but on a much deeper level, Nehemiah was concerned for the glory of God's name. We know this because what happens in Nehemiah 12, once these walls are rebuilt, you know what they do? They climb up on those walls and they march around on them and they sing and they shout the glory of God. And Nehemiah 12 says, the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. So this is the second thing. I believe God is saying to this gathering, yes, see a world in great need. And second, believe that I deserve greater glory. God is saying, believe that I deserve greater glory. Believe that. Now, some might think, are you sure God's saying that? That God's saying, I deserve more glory Because that kind of makes God sound self centered. So, is that really true? Well, let's test this in God's Word. A very quick tour, starting in the beginning Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. When God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the picture is clear, God creates men and women in his image as a reflection of his glory and then what does he tell them to do? multiply, and fill the earth. I want my image. I want reflection of my glory everywhere. Everywhere. Earth filled with the reflections of my glory. And that begins the self-exalting plan of God that traces trajectory all the way through Scripture. I and mean, just think along the way, key points. why is God doing what He's doing? Why is God doing what he's doing in Genesis 12 when he says, Abraham, hey, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to call you out. This, you're an idolater, but I'm going to call you out by my grace. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you I'm going to curse you or a curse. and through you, all the nations, all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed. I'm going to show all the nations through you. you're going to be a conduit of my work. You're going to be a display of my goodness to the nations. Same thing he says to his son Isaac in Genesis chapter 26 verse 4. Jacob, Genesis chapter 28, verse 14. He said, I'm going to bless you with descendants like the stars of the sky. And through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will know my blessing. Then you, you get past the patriarchs into the book of Exodus. Why did God do, did, do what he did? When he brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. And as the Egyptians are running after them, God brings them to the edge of the Red Sea. Not a good military move. When you think about a huge body of water, nowhere to turn to the right or left, and right behind you is an Egyptian army. Why did God bring his people there? Exodus chapter 14 verse 4 makes very clear why God brought his people there. He said, I'm going to gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. When I split this sea in half, you go through, you look in your rearview mirror, and the water comes crashing down on those Egyptians. They will know that I am the Lord. He says, I'm gaining glory for myself, God says. You, you keep going, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Why did God give his people his word? He said, I give you my word so that when you follow it, you'll show that I'm wise to the nations. You'll show my wisdom, my glory to the nations. It's, it's stories like Joshua at Jericho, when he's there in Joshua chapter 5. It's one of the passages we were reading back there early yesterday, just praying through and And you got Joshua about to go into this first major city in the Promised Land. And remember, massive walls all around the city. And. Basically had five military options available to him. He could try to take the army over the walls, under the walls. They could try to break through the walls. They could try to send a decoy in, kind of like a Trojan horse type thing. Or they could starve the people inside the walls and make them come out. Five military options, over, under, through, send the decoy in, starve and make them come out. And Joshua's thinking through. He's off by himself. End of Joshua chapter five. What's the battle plan gonna be? He runs into the commander of the army of the Lord and he says, what's the plan? And God says, okay, here's the plan. Joshua's thinking over, under, through. Which one's he gonna choose? And God says, get your trumpet players. Josh was thinking of the music, guys? <laughs> no offense. And he says, uh, You're going to uh, play some tunes for a few days. And then one day, after you've played some songs, uh, here's the climax you're going to shout really loud. And the walls will come down. And you'll take the city. That's strange. If you're Joshua, you're wanting a second opinion at this point. I mean, could you imagine going back to the army that's been training for an entire generation for battle and saying, hey guys, I know you've been working out and getting ready, but uh, uh, we're giving to the music guys today. <laughs> 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 They've been practicing hard too. So, uh, <laughs> so why? Why was God doing that? Why did he design this? Well, it's clear what he's doing. He's orchestrating the events of his people so that in the end, only he's going to get the glory for what happens. Because when you get to Joshua chapter 6, they do exactly that, and you see the people take the city. Afterward, you don't see them going up to the trumpet players, telling them what an incredible job they did that day. Like, Ralph, I've never heard you play that well. Harry, you hit the high C. Man, you nailed it. Thank you. Now you see them on their faces saying, only God could have done this. He's glorifying himself. all these stories. You look at at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why let these three Hebrew boys be thrown into a fiery furnace? So that when they come out on the other side, Daniel chapter 3, verse 28 to 29, look at it. It says, so that this pagan king would declare the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is worthy of praise because he's able to save his people. Same thing three chapters later, and the lions did. Why would God let Daniel would be thrown into a lion's den for praying. I mean, it'll make you think twice about a quiet time in the morning. This is what God does. So why? Why did He do that? So that when He comes out of that den, Daniel chapter six, verse twenty-five and twenty-six would say that the God of Daniel is worthy of praise throughout the land. That's a pagan king saying that God's doing that for His glory. You just keep going. It's the Psalms. I mean, God wrote a whole hymn book to Himself. Right. Declare my glory among the nations. My marvelous deeds among the peoples. He wrote that. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to cause my face to shine upon you. So that my ways may be known on earth. And my salvation known among the nations. Psalm 67. Even we we sang it earlier We're and change. Psalm 23, right? Oh Lord, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me. He guides me in paths of righteousness. For his name. Why does God guide us as a shepherd? For the sake of his name. It's the Psalms. It's the prophets. It's, it's Isaiah in that beautiful passage. Remember Isaiah 43? Fear not. I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You're mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they won't slip over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. Because I'm the Lord your God. You're precious and honored in my sight. And I love you. And he goes on and he says, I've created you for my glory. I love you and I've created you for my glory. Maybe the clearest, you remember uh, Ezekiel chapter 36 when God's speaking to his people and he's disciplining them and he's talking about why he's doing what he's doing among them. He says, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm doing these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you've profaned among the nations. I will show the holiness of my great name, the name you've profaned among the nations, The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. God saying to his people, when I bless you and I work among you, it's not for your sake, it's for my sake. It's not not for your sake, it's for my sake. You say, well, that's just God in the Old Testament. Well, let's turn the page in the New Testament and see every gospel account ending with this picture of going to the nations. So you've seen my grace, now make disciples of all nations with this gospel. Preach the good news to all creation. Luke twenty four forty seven through 49. Why did Jesus die on a cross? So that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be preached among all the nations. So all the nations might know, which is why Luke picks it up in the book of Acts and says, now go make this good news known here, there, and everywhere as we've heard. And it just continues. I mean, the whole story of the New Testament is about declaring the glory of God, not just among the Jewish people, among all the peoples, among all the nations. Paul even equates his own calling to Christ with mission Galatians 1, 15 and 16, God was pleased to reveal his son to me so that. So why? Why, Paul, was God pleased to reveal Christ to you? So that I might preach him among the nations. So it continues. And this we started in Genesis 1. Now Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. So God wrote this book, and he wrote it to end this way. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. They cried out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God wrote a book that ends with him getting worshiped by everybody. So is God centered around himself? I think so. God is radically God-centered, which makes total sense, doesn't it? It's part of God's nature to center on God. For God to be God means that God exalts God. If all this rubs you wrong, I would just ask the follow-up question, well, who else would you have him exalt? You? Or me? If God were to exalt anyone or anything else, he'd no longer be the God who's worthy of all exaltation. And he is, he orchestrates everything for his glory. Now the beauty is, don't miss this, the beauty and the wonder of it is how God glorifies himself because while God would be altogether right and just to glorify himself in the condemnation of guilty sinners God has chosen to glorify himself in the salvation of guilty sinners God has sent his son divinity clothed in human flesh to live the life we could not live a life of perfect holiness and though he had no sin in him for which to pay he died the death we deserve to die and then how did God glorify himself? He raised his son from the dead. Conquering sin and Satan, death itself. We're talking not reincarnation, resuscitation. We're talking resurrection. We're talking you go to a funeral tomorrow and you see a man's body put in a coffin and put in the ground and door, pour, door poured over it. And then you drive away and next week that same guy comes up to you on the street and says, hello. That's unusual. That's unusual. This is the greatest news in all the world. Death has been defeated. And God's done this. He's done this for his name's sake. He's glorified himself and the crucifixion of his son for the sake of our salvation and the exaltation of his name.
1: That's all for today's episode. We hope you'll join us next time for the continuation of this message. The Radical Together podcast and other resources, including those in other languages, are available because of generous giving from listeners like you. And we'd like to ask you to consider giving to our ministry so that Radical may continue in the mission of being devoted to Christ, serving the church, and reaching the nations. For information on how to give, visit Radical.net slash donate. And if you'd like to know more about the International Mission Board, visit imb.org. Join us next time for more teaching from David right here on the Radical Together podcast.